I think for me, it was, there's just some level of maturity, right? The year before, I probably thought the same thing. And I think it was a little bit of a crisis of, of self, right? Is wait, am I a sort of a mediocre student or a mediocre Stanford student? I want to know, like, I want to know whether or not people who've said, oh, you could be great. Like, I'm like, well, now I'm sort of curious. Let me find out what that, at least in this setting, what that means. Nobody asked me to do it. I don't even think anybody knew I did it. I didn't talk about it. I didn't make a, a scene about it. I just did it. Like I did it because I needed to do it. Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. On this week's episode of The One Hour Intern, I learned from education extraordinaire, a Sacred Heart Prep Atherton teacher, Jake Moffat. Jake dives into how he bounced back from not making the U16 US soccer team, getting into Stanford without technically graduating high school, and how he became a professional website designer with no coding or design experience. Jake, thank you for joining us today. We're excited to hear your story. Great. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with some context about you. You're a high school English teacher and a creative inquiry department head. Can you tell us about a day in your shoes? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things I like about being a teacher is that the day in my shoes, while maybe sort of similar, are all pretty different. I live close to work, which is super valuable to me. So I wake up and read or do work, drink coffee, ride my bike to school. These days, I ride my bike to school with my daughter, which is pretty fun. And I teach classes, collaborate with other teachers, work on independent projects with students, both in the context of classes in and outside of classes. And I sort of see my workday now as I am in conversation and relationship with a bunch of different students, some colleagues from the minute I get to school till the minute I leave, which I find delightful and somewhat exhausting and also energizing. And I end up home by four o'clock almost every day. I exercise, I cook dinner, I spend time with my family, and my day looks sort of like that every day. Can you uh, talk to how being a teacher kind of shapes your personality and the values that you have in your daily life? Yeah, actually, so this is interesting. Having my daughter come, this happened twice, but having my daughter come as a freshman in high school now to watch the first couple weeks, I think she sort of wanted, was thought that her job was to not talk to me at school. And I think she recognized that I'm exactly the same person at school as I am at home. Like that that notion of like, oh, we're supposed to be different people at school than we are at home. I think she recognized like, oh, my dad is exactly the same person at the dinner table as he is in his classroom, as he is at lunch at school. So in a way, I'm not sure that being a teacher shapes my personality at all. I think that my personality dictates that I'm a teacher. I care about ideas, I care about thinking, and I care about the world. And I like being in relationships with people who are interested in ideas or interested in learning or engaged in exploring who they are and how they can be in the world. So I feel that way when I'm sitting at home talking to my wife. I feel that way if I'm 
out to dinner with friends. And I became, ultimately became a teacher because I wanted to live my life from when I got up to when I go to bed, as opposed to going to work to earn a paycheck or to do a job and then having that pay for me to live my life after I left work. On another note, can you talk about your teaching style and how you kind of foster student growth within your classroom? Sometimes my teaching style is just chaotic. So there's some part of it I sort of constantly have some self-doubt about my teaching style. That said, I fundamentally have a goal as a teacher. And that goal as a teacher is to ask students to care about thinking, to question the world that they live in, and to question themselves. So whatever I do as a teacher has at its core the hope that kids do that, that the hope that kids will, will question, will think. And I fundamentally believe that everybody wants to do that. So I try to meet kids where they are. I present myself honestly, and I ask them to be honest with me. And I end up, I, one of the, my favorite things about teaching is that if I get to a midterm rating point or some point where I need to meet with parent-teacher conferences, and I stop and reflect about my students, I find that I like them all. Like I fundamentally like the people who are in front of me. Like when I stop to think about who are they, what do they do? You know, some of them are sort of obnoxious. Some of them are a little bit of suck-ups, whatever it is. But at their core, I sort of have a belief that people are good, particularly kids, students want to be good, want to be interesting. And I end up liking them. I think one of the big flaws students have is some notion that how they perform academically has anything to do with how I feel about them. That's a great philosophy to teach by. I think I, all teachers have that philosophy. Uh, school would be a much better environment. Let's move to your family life now. We know that you have uh, two daughters and are happily married. Can you talk about what your relationship with your family is and how you live that part of your life? Yeah, so I have a 14-year-old daughter. I have a 26-year-old stepdaughter and a wife who I've been married to for a little bit more than 15 years. And I think they're delightful. They are easily the priority in my life. Like people say that. I think I live it. I really like my job. But if one of my daughters sort of says, yeah, I want to spend time with you. That's what I do. I'm happy to not do the best job of my job or to get up early the next morning to get done what I have to get done. We eat dinner together every night. We cook most every night together. We travel a bunch. We play games, though not nearly as many games as I would play given the opportunity. I think my wife thinks I'm a bit of a weirdo. I've convinced my girls that Playing games is fun. Maybe I haven't convinced them that it's cool. That might be a harder task. You know, like old school board games may, might not be that cool. That's sort of what I, what I do. Like I feel really sorry for people who have to drive an hour or more to work in both directions or that are at work, you know, until seven or eight at night. And then that's their time with family is either limited or is just on weekends or just on vacation is just not a life I'm, I'm interested in. Can you explain what you think your job as a parent is? 
Yeah, sure. Well, my job as a parent, I think, first and foremost, is to love and support my kids. And really, I don't know if it counts as my job. I, I feel like my other calling is to enjoy being with them, right? To have fun with them, to to sort of embrace who they are and celebrate them as people. That said, I, I'm sort of a hard ass. Like, they should be good human beings. And my job is to ask them and push them to be thoughtful human beings. And that's sort of success is go live your life in a thoughtful way. You know, try things, think about things, but be considerate of other people and care about the world. I find being a parent delightful. I get to hang out with people who are who are neat and interested and engaged in the world. I think that my older daughter, my stepdaughter, really appreciated, I think she thought as a stepdad that she thought for a while that I was pretty tough on her. And I think really liked watching my interactions with our younger daughter as she recognized, oh, this is just who he is. He's not this way because he's a stepdad and I'm a stepdaughter. He's this way because this is how he is with kids. And I think I'm not that different with students, or I try to be. And I only have the challenge that I'm just not with them as much. Did the, uh, the stepdaughter aspect of your older daughter, did that change, the, change anything about your relationship, or was that kind of irrelevant to you? The fact that she was a stepdaughter? Well, I mean, I have a whole theory about I sort of want to write a, an essay about step parenting that's fascinating to me, which is if you think about being a high school student when you're a freshman and you re- think about the seniors when you're a freshman, they are invariably the coolest, funniest, most mature high school students you know. And by the time you become a senior, you look around at the seniors who are in your class and you're like, these kids are not nearly as cool as the seniors when I was a freshman. And that's because you saw them only as seniors. And when you see the kids in your class, you either got to know them as they were freshmen or you may have known them when they were in fifth grade. And they'll never stop being fifth graders in some way. So when I think of the challenge of being a step-parent is that parents who are birth parents will never stop seeing their kids as helpless babies in some small way because they took care of you. Your mom took care of you when you were an infant. So in some way, the baseline for her is that you're an infant. Always. And a step-parent steps in and doesn't get that. They start, so with Amy, I started with her as an eight-year-old. So that's the baseline. And Amy was a super bright eight-year-old. So I treated her as a super bright, capable eight-year-old. And that's hard. One of the challenges of step-parenting is that the stepchild is like, wait, my mom or my real parent would let me whine about this or would let me get away with this and wouldn't call me to be mature about it because they listened to you cry when you were an infant and 
let you wine when you were two, and those patterns sort of develop. So I think that's the the challenge of being a step parent. But if you're present and loving and consistent, it's also a huge opportunity. So as a teacher, I got to hang out with Amy in the summers. I had time in some places to walk with her to school. She went to school with me. So I had all that time. And over time, she recognized that me being expecting more from her got her to a place that she wanted to be. So she now, she has questions about things. She needs to solve a problem. I'm the person she calls. And there's a whole bunch of things she does that I taught her how to do, that we did together. So yes, but I don't refer to her as my stepdaughter. I mean, I refer to her as my daughter. She refers to me as her dad. She has a dad who's in the picture, but that's the relationship. And it feels like that's what it is. Does that inspiration as a parent come from the way that you were treated by your parents in the relationship that you had with your parents and them being divorced? Or is that just something you kind of built on your own? My parents got divorced when I was five. We were living in Taos, New Mexico. My dad went to nursing school. So he left Taos to go to Albuquerque. My mom moved. I don't think she wanted to move. I was five. My sister was eight. He, my dad tells, actually tells a story of telling the two of us. He sat us down. I know exactly where he sat us down. Uh, we're sitting on the floor with our back to a couch, like my favorite couch in the world. And he told us, I don't think I really got it, but he describes, and I sort of feel bad for him to this day. He describes my sister sort of collapsing like a tree when he told her that he left my mom for another woman who he had met in this nursing program. I lived half the time with my dad and my stepmom and two step-siblings and half the time with my mom. Actually, I mean, one of the things super interesting is being the youngest, everybody expected me to keep up. And so I spent a bunch of time trying to make sure I could keep up, like really not wanting to mess up. And so that was pretty influential. Did having divorced parents change anything else about you or anything else that you think kind of affected the way you live today or the way you went through high school, college? It's always hard to figure out how much those things make you who you are and how much you are who you are. Certainly physically, it made a big difference. So I moved back and forth every two weeks from one house to the other, starting when I was five. It made me really close to my sister. So the only thing that was constant was my sister and I were together. She was four years ahead of me in school. By the time she left to college, and it was just me, I asked to to move back and forth to spend a year at each place. I just didn't like going back and forth. And the result, and my dad got divorced again. So by the time I was in high school, it was me staying with my parents. And I had an enormous amount of freedom. So I had almost no rules. My parents trusted me sort of implicitly. If either one of them went out of town, I took care of the house where the person out of town was. Like, so it never occurred to me until I became a high school teacher that people would send the kid to the house with the parent to take care of the kid. My parents always sent me to the house to take care of the house, which either makes them, you know, 
not very thoughtful parents, or they just trusted me to take care of things. That was the notion. I don't think anybody really ever worried about my ability to take care of myself or my ability to do whatever I needed to do. So would you say that your home life really kind of changed who you were as a person, or is that just something you can't really talk to because you don't know how you would be if you were in that experience of the divorced family? I'm sort of glad they got divorced. I think where divorce is a problem is when parents are mean to each other, step out of their role as parents, and neither of my parents did that. So they were totally civil with each other. They liked each other, and they loved my me and my sister dearly. So there's never any sense that either of my parents were not fully engaged in our lives. So that part, I'm like, okay, whatever. You can do whatever you need to do in your life. That doesn't bother me. The only thing that bothered me was moving back and forth. And I, didn't, I was sort of annoyed by having a stepmother who wasn't that engaged in my life but still told me what to do. I didn't really like anybody telling me what to do, so much less somebody who wasn't that engaged in what I was doing. So I don't think it's about divorce. Both of my parents are fiercely intellectual really thoughtful human beings and have very high expectations of who you're supposed to be as a person. That is far more influential than anything. I mean, I, I was on a rafting trip with my dad and some friends of mine, including one of my best friends. And my dad gave my friend, I mean, we were grown by then, gave my friend a pretty hard time. And I was like, wow, Steve Moffat is I don't know anybody that Steve Moffat is as hard on as you. And he looked at me and laughed. And he was like, oh, I know somebody. You know, just sort of this notion of like that expectation of sort of who you are and how you engage in the world. Those expectations were super high, always. Uh, not particularly academic expectations or anything like that, but sort of who you are and how thoughtful you were and how sort of decent a human being you were, those expectations were always unquestionably high. And is there anything that you learned from your parents that you really want to pass on to our listeners and to your kids and to anyone in the world, really? My dad didn't ever yell at us, but there are a number of times where he would give you a sort of a speech about your integrity or honesty that made you feel about two inches tall. So one of the things that he really believed in, he's like, yeah, you can mess up. Like messing up is fine. People mess up. But you have to be honest. That lying about it, that lying to people, that being that your integrity is really sort of all you have. So he really believed in that. And he helped me think about why people do things that people have different skills, that people have different interests, and that you need to value and understand why people are doing what they're doing. On a bigger scale, my dad has, I think, has probably rafted the Grand Canyon 15 times, maybe 12 times. The last time when he was in his late 60s, early 70s, he rode an ore boat down the Grand Canyon. Pretty amazing. And his basic theory about rafting the Grand Canyon was that if you are offered the opportunity to do a Grand Canyon trip, you do it. 
And if you think you can't do it because you have a job, you quit your job in Wrath of the Great Canyon. He means quite literally that you quit your job to Wrath of the Great Canyon because it's this transcendent experience, which it is. It's unbelievable. But that notion that you, you live your life, you take opportunities that are transcendent or are joyful or that are life-changing, and you can get another job. And, you know, I think he is a guy who's super capable. So, and not that attached to, to money. So that belief of like you live your life in a way that allows you to do things that bring you joy and you don't get tied to some expectation of who you're supposed to be or how you're supposed to be that keeps you from having those experiences. And that philosophy of life, I think, is, is pretty glorious. If you were to, Tell your children that who are in school or in the early stages of their career, how do they live that way? In your opinion, how is it for them to live that way if they're trapped by school and by literally needing funds to survive? Yes, you need funds to survive, but you can get a job. You don't need to be crazy wealthy. You can make choices that allow you to do things that make you happy without starving that those that equation is is not as black and white as kids feel like it is so you attended albuquerque high school you were an exceptional student you completed your senior year in barcelona through andover's year abroad program but you never graduated high school can you tell us a little bit about what school was like for you in middle school nobody particularly thought i was a great student per se my siblings all told me that by the that high school was really important. That, that now it matters. Like now you have to work really hard and study, and this is a big deal. So I started high school with that. Like I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to do a good job. And I started out, and I worked really hard, and I did everything well. And after the first quarter or the maybe the first semester I had six A pluses and an A and I was like, wait a second, I've been duped. I was told that this was hard and really important and, and it was not that hard. And I also learned something about at my high school that all of our grades were, and this nobody should have told me this. There's lots of things nobody should ever, ever have or should never tell me. All grades at our school, if you had an A, if it were an 89.7, or a 102 became on your transcript an A. So all A's were just A's. All B's were B's. There were no, no GPA difference to an 89.6 that was rounded up to an A minus was exactly the same as a 101 that was, became an A. All the same. So I was like, oh, there is no reason for me to be getting 101. Not good for my education. Let's just be clear. Because then I recognize like, oh, I just need to get a 90 on everything. And I proceeded to figure out how to get a 90 on everything, which was probably not that good. I was a very serious soccer player. So my high school interactions, at least for the first couple of years, were I figured out how to do just about all of my schoolwork at school. I maybe had no homework. I played soccer maybe 25 hours a week. 
maybe more. Most weeks, if it were light out during the day I was playing soccer, I found lots of school to be super inefficient. So math class, there's always 20 minutes in a math class, at least in my math classes, that when I would get to a math class, I'd open up my book, look at whatever tomorrow's homework was, take the first five minutes while people were messing around, do the first problem or the second problem. If somebody was writing stuff up on the board, I'd do another problem. Like I just have it out. If there was some time at the end, most people chat with a peer, talk to somebody. I just did my work. Not that I wasn't interested in chatting with peers or talking to people, but I also thought that going home to do a, to start a math assignment, I probably never went home and started a math assignment. That said, I really could have been a better math student. Like it would have been, I would have benefited from having a more rigorous math curriculum, more challenge in that way. But it was also pretty fun. It wasn't very stressful. I had a good time. And I was allowed to play a bunch of soccer and do a bunch of interesting things. I had to take communication skills. At some point, the teacher let me teach part of it. I had to take health. My teacher let me grade the final, like, or the midterm, like, actually let me grade all of it, not just the, the multiple choice. She let me grade the short answer. I was like, is there a key? And she's like, you know, the answers just grade it. Um, and so I graded the whole exam for my peers. Like, I just, I was a freshman, I think. So I did a bunch of stuff like that. And at some point, I, like my junior year, I, I was gone. I went on two like week and a half long trips. And then I started failing classes. And then I was like, this is a problem. I need to, to sort of take school a little bit more seriously and a little bit less flippantly by that point. My only reaction is to uh, say, wow. <laughs> and just say that I wish that my teachers would let me grade my own midterm. Well, okay. If you would like the most awkward student experience story happened to me in that class. I have not grown since I was a freshman in high school. So by eighth, I was done growing in eighth grade. I had more hair, but people often thought I was in college when I was a freshman in high school. I was pretty well-spoken and I could talk to adults. So I was always had that ability. As a kid, you have no idea how old your teachers were. She was a relatively young, attractive teacher. I remember that because I remember thinking, what are you doing letting me grade the test? Like, this can't be good teaching. But it was funny. I did know the answers and it was not hard for me to grade them. But that class, that health class, we had to do, part of the curriculum was to do CPR. And there's 30 kids. We were in a portable classroom. I remember almost nothing from high school in some ways, but boy, do I remember this day. 30 kids, not an honors class, like totally diverse, interesting group of students. And we're doing, it's the day to do CPR. This health teacher is wearing a yellow pencil skirt. It's like a relatively tight pencil skirt that goes down below her knees. And she called me up to the front of the class because she needed a dummy. So she laid me down, sort of my head 
towards the desk. There's probably 30 kids. My feet towards the board and sort of explain to the kids sort of about CPR and about chest compressions and how you do that while I'm laying on the floor. Like the kids clearly are like, oh, what's that guy doing down there? She proceeded to then straddle me, which required her to hike up her skirt. And it's not how you do CPR. You don't straddle somebody when you do chest compressions. So she straddled me in front of 30 kids and like put her hands on my chest like chest compressions and then sort of stopped and talked to these kids, none of whom were paying any attention because they were like, like jaws dropped watching whatever was sort of in front of them. And I was like, what is happening? Like I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't be like, this is uncomfortable that you've straddled my crotch in front of 30 kids with your skirt hiked up. That was a day. That was a day in high school that you probably haven't had. You're just making me say, wow, <laughs> even more. Eh, that's funny. Can you um, talk about how the, the way you did in high school and kind of your mentality of, I only have to get a 90%, did that really like have a long-term effect on you or did you kind of get over that and build a work ethic? By the time I was a little bit older, I regularly heard the sort of, man, you could do amazing things if you really applied yourself. And my sophomore year, my freshman year at Stanford, I did not do great. I sort of partied a little bit and did everything. Like I wasn't a big partier per se, but I was sort of, I did everything. Like I, whatever was going on, I, People went bungee jumping, I went bungee jumping. If people, like, I started a supper club, I did, like, I just did a bunch of stuff. And I just wasn't really prepared to do that well in school. Like, the math I was in was hard. I didn't quite know how to do it, and I didn't put the work in to really do it well. Because I hadn't developed that skill. I was in honors physics, which I was just not had nothing to do with how hard I worked. I just didn't have the background to do it. If I went to a place, a school like yours, I probably could have. Where I came from, I just didn't have the background. So I did fine. But I, one of the things I distinctly remember is that I sort of thought writing papers was like magic. I'd write them and then print them and send them down a well, and then they'd come back with a grade on them, and I didn't really understand it. and. I never really had classes like my classes in college where you get lots of reading. I I was always going to class or going to exam, not having read everything. So the beginning of my sophomore year, I committed to myself. I was like, I need to know what I can do. Like, I need to know what happens if I do all the work, commit to, to doing things ahead of time, paying attention. So, in my sophomore year, I got a study carol in the library and left my books there. So I did not bring any books back to my dorm room. And I committed that Monday through Thursday, I would be in the library from seven till midnight, regardless of what happened. Like the most attractive girl could have come and said, I'm going to be naked in your room for the next four hours. And I was like, I will be there at midnight, but 
I'm not here. Like, and I actually, I needed to sort of make that, what it's worth, that didn't happen. But I needed to make sure that that, like, that I just committed myself to doing that. I also committed that any paper I had to write, I would finish a full week ahead of time, leave for two days, and then revise until it was due, basically. And it was a super interesting, it was actually a great experience. I wasn't stressed. It's basically the only time in my life I haven't had some level of anxiety. I had read everything. I knew the answers to, like, I knew the answers to everything that I needed the answers for. My papers, I'm actually, that quarter is likely the reason I feel comfortable teaching writing. I got to where I knew that I had a paper that was a B, it became a B plus, it became an A minus, it was an A. I turned in papers that I had no question what grade I was going to get, not because I was arrogant about it, but I was like, I have an argument. I know what my argument is. I've proven my argument. My paper is clean. There's no mistakes. I'm submitting something that is, that is good. And that was a really important experience for me because I was able to figure out, at least as a student, what absolutely had to get done, what didn't have to get done. And it, it helped me empathize with people who I'm okay with some anxiety about not knowing everything. It was pretty nice not to, not to have any of that for that quarter, but it was a bigger sacrifice than I wanted to make for that. So I didn't keep doing that. Like I actually like when somebody says, Hey, you want to go to San Francisco right now? Cause the zoo is open tonight. Actually, I'm much more interested in saying, yeah, I want to go to the zoo on a Friday night or on a Thursday night because that's interesting. But it, it was really important for me to take the time to know what it meant to do everything exactly the way it had been asked of me. It also helped me that I learned how to write. So I was, from then on, I, you know, I knew how to construct a paper that I would do well on. And I, I was a much better student after that. I actually, my senior year, I went, my girlfriend was, had graduated and was teaching in, in Indonesia. And I made enough money in the summer to go visit her at Christmas. And I went for six weeks because I was like, if I'm going to go buy myself a plane ticket to fly to Indonesia, I'm not going to stay for two weeks. Maybe it was five weeks, but it meant that I got back to Stanford in this winter quarter, two and a half weeks into the quarter. So I missed the first two and a half weeks of the, of the quarter. I got there. I got back like three days before the first midterm in one of my classes. I had not actually gone to the class once before taking the midterm, but I knew it was on the reading list. I'd taken a bunch of those classes. I understood what I needed to know. Like I got the online notes. Had I not taken that time to find out what it meant to do everything, right? And to sort of cloister myself essentially and do what I needed to do to, to have read everything. And I wouldn't then know what things needed to get done so that I could do something like going to Indonesia for six weeks or five and a half weeks with to see my girlfriend and to travel through Indonesia. I think there's lots of people who think, oh, I can just do it on a, 
on a whim. I'm smart. I can, I can wing it. I think it's really hard to wing it if you don't understand what it means to get to do all of it. And how do you get to that mentality? Because I know that I set out and I say, oh, I want to work from seven till midnight on a daily basis and not do anything else, not get distracted, but I can't keep it up. How do you get to the mentality where you really push yourself to actually work for those hours? I think for me, it was, there's just some level of maturity, right? The year before, I probably thought the same thing. And I think it was a little bit of a crisis of of self, right? Is, wait, am I a sort of a mediocre student or a mediocre Stanford student? I want to know. Like, I want to know whether or not people who've said, oh, you could be great. Like, I'm like, well, now I'm sort of curious. Let me find out what that, at least in this setting, what that means. Nobody asked me to do it. I don't even think anybody knew I did it. I didn't talk about it. I didn't make a a scene about it. If that, like, I just did it. Like, I did it because I needed to do it. Can we talk about why you chose Stanford and kind of what went through your mind through that college process? Well, I never thought I was going to get into Stanford first. And to that end, I sort of always suggested that I wasn't that interested in Stanford, which I think lots of people do. For background, my grandmother went to Stanford. My grandmother's one of the first, in one of the first classes of women at Stanford. She's a sort of a pioneering journalist in San Francisco. My dad went to Stanford and my sister went to Stanford. So my sister graduated from Apple Creek High four years before me. And I think was sort of unhappy. She's a super rational, smart, intellectual person. And she got to Stanford and was so happy. She And she described it this way. She's surrounded by people like her for the first time. People who liked ideas, who didn't care about being cool. They were sort of geeks and delighted by it. And so that had a big influence on me as a, you know, as a 14-year-old. I was in Barcelona. I was playing soccer and living in Barcelona. I was living with a Spanish family. The program I had went to had some college counseling. I took the SAT once. I sort of assumed it was an aptitude test. Nobody had told me that I was supposed to study for it or care that much. I went dancing the night before I took it, and I think I probably came home at six in the morning. I don't think I did great. I did fine. And and I submitted my applications, some of which I took seriously and some I did not take so seriously. I applied to Yale, which I sat down in one sitting and wrote my whole application on paper with a purple pen. Back in the day, that was not all this online or common app. It was a paper application. The Yale one, I started with a purple pen. I got to whatever the prompts were for the essays, and I wrote as though I was writing a short answer in class with my pen. I probably crossed some things out with my purple pen. It'll surprise you that I didn't get into Yale. With, I'm sure they looked at it and threw it away like within 13 seconds. My Stanford one, I printed things out and either pasted them on or printed it on the application. And then you send in a physical paper application. So I did take my Stanford application seriously. I took a bunch of time thinking about the essays in that one. The great thing is I was in Barcelona as a 17-year-old. It was glorious. I didn't worry about 
college, I don't remember worrying about college at all. And I assumed I was going to go, I think I always assumed I was going to go to UC San Diego, which I really liked. And I got into Stanford. And when I got into Stanford, I knew I was going to go to Stanford. But I think that's more because my sister had been, had been so happy there that sort of a place that just sounded, made it sound super appealing. Can you talk about how the rest of your college experience kind of built your values and who you are as a person? More than anything, I only want friends whose general default is to say yes. And I don't mean that in the like, hey, let's do drugs. Yes. But I want to sort of say, hey, can you take the day off next week and we go climb a mountain? That their answer is, yeah, I think I can do that. Maybe they can't do it. But so many people you encounter, you ask them a question like that, there's 20 reasons why they can't do it. And their answer is no. And so most people, maybe that's not fair, as much as they'd like the notion of doing it, their first response is, I can't do that. And I recognized that I wanted to spend time with people who said, yeah, I can do that. Like, lots of times you can't. Like, I get it. It's, I'm not saying that you should drop everything, but that their notion is, yeah, I want to do that. That's interesting. Let's do that. And then discover, oh, I actually really can't get out of work that day or I have a big presentation. Can we do it next time? Great. Tons of respect. This week, I will be pouring wine in place of my friend who's a winemaker for a private function in San Francisco. It's a terrible time. It's the middle of the week. I'll be tired. But I like the idea of you know being a winemaker for a night in a like exclusive setting because I don't know, I don't get to do that. So my answer is, well, okay, I'll do that because that'll be interesting. It'll be some experience that will enrich me in some way. And that actually becomes more and more concerning to me as an adult, that it becomes easier and easier to sort of stay in your lane, to do the things that you're, that you're good at or that you know how to do and not try wacky things for the sake of doing wacky things. But as soon as you stop doing those things that are probably dumb because they're a little bit extra effort and they might make you tired tomorrow, then life gets sort of grim. I know that you kind of were part of the dot-com boom and then you were an executive in an internet company. Can we just quickly talk about how that shaped you and any important stories you have from there that would be a, give advice to the listeners? I was living in Denver with my girlfriend at the time. She was in a teaching program. I had sort of applied for jobs. Uh, I didn't get one, and I recognized I needed to make money. It was the very beginning of, of the internet. So this was 1996, and I was like, okay, everybody seems excited about websites. I think I'll make websites. So I managed, I don't quite know, I, th I mean, sort of through some context, managed to get two meetings with CEOs in which I went in. I was a young guy from Stanford and I went in and made a pitch about making websites. And both of them offered me the job. Nobody made websites at the time, right? Like now everybody can, can make a great website on WordPress. At the time it was writing HTML code and nobody in Denver knew how to do it. So I said, yeah, I make websites. I had never made a website in my life. 
And I got two, two jobs. I think the first one, they're like, what do you charge? I charge $5,000. And they're like, great. I was like, ah, I, I charge a lot more than that. Because I actually had no idea how much anybody charged to make a website because I'd never made a website. And I went straight to the bookstore after booking that first website and bought two books on advanced HTML. Partially because I thought, well, if I'm going to get paid as a professional, learning beginning HTML seems really dumb because I need to do advanced HTML. And I taught myself how to code HTML, which I was fine at, though I was not good at designing particularly. And I made a couple corporate websites because I told people I knew how to do it. And in the process, then somebody, I found an ad of somebody who was doing essentially this was fascinating. Actually, they're, they're making the, what's the precursor to, to search engines, sort of. U.S. West was trying to make like a, the equivalent of a phone book for websites. Now, this is, so will seem, now I've made myself seem quite old. And part of that process was they, or, so people had websites, but there's no real way to access them. So, they had this whole list of websites and my, they were like, well, you go sort of rate them, like actually go to them, rate them and tell us whether or not they belong in our directory or not, which I did. And, and I went back to them and I said, you know, you're not constructing these lists very well. Like you could construct the list better. And they're like, well, will you construct the list for us? Like they just, they had more work than they can do. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. They said, well, how much do you charge for that? I said, $25 an hour. Okay. <sighs> Again, thwarted. And then I went back to the next part of the project and I suggested that they weren't doing that part of the project as efficiently as they could either. And they're like, well, do you want to do that? I was like, sure. They're like, what do you charge for that? I was like, $50 an hour. They're like, okay. And then we actually started a conversation where they... They were like, why, with the first work, they're like, why are you doing this work? Like, they basically were like, would you want to just work on this project with us? Like, they were ready to give me a job. And I was also selling wine online at that time. Like, I had developed part of making websites, was doing that. So in a way, I was actually really close to sort of having my own gigs, sort of having taught myself how to do things. And and I, then I got a call from somebody who, had just left his job to go work at At Home Networks. It was sort of the hottest company in the Valley at the time. It was like the biggest sort of hotshot company in sort of 1997. I, that was hard. I mean, that was a, it was a weird, I didn't really want to say yes, but I couldn't, I was living with a girlfriend who I, we had a great relationship. And once that call came, and I think this is, these things happen in people's lives. You get that call that says, for me to say no to the hottest internet in Silicon Valley in the time where that was all the, the rage was almost impossible. I were sort of myself now, I would have been like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I actually have a pretty interesting job now. Like, I was actually making a fair amount of money. I was in total control of it. I had my own business and I had a girlfriend that I had a great relationship with. The challenge is you get that phone call and that puts a whole different set of pressure on a relationship. Because if I say no, then she's sort of the reason I say no. And I, you're also stuck with the what if. 
right? The like, oh, people are going to get rich and and live fancy lives and be in the middle of the most interesting thing in the world. So I said, yes, I think it was totally devastating to my girlfriend at the time. I didn't understand that because I was going to do something interesting. And I walked out of the life I was living with her and left her alone in that life. That's rough. Like it's rough to know that I did that. Is it something that you regret making that decision or do you think that in the long run it was crucial to your life? I don't feel like I had a choice. That The notion of regretting making decisions is I don't really believe in. I mean, it's sort of. It was sort of the only decision I could make. Given who I was at the time, was a decision I was going to make. All my friends were here living in San Francisco. It was sort of the hottest thing going. I had an offer to be a part of the coolest internet thing at the time. To say no, to do sort of something I'm cobbling together myself was almost impossible, even if it was probably the right decision. Like timing and and situation makes a huge difference. I mean, what I do regret is not understanding and caring for her in the way that I needed to. So I, I regret the way I treat people. I regret things I say that I didn't mean to say. Decisions, I feel like decisions you need to make thoughtfully and they're not always right. But if you make them thoughtfully at the time, they then inform who you become. So making a bad decision, like people who dwell on, I made the wrong decision. If I made the other decision, I would have been at that other company and I would have gotten rich. And this one went belly up. Like It doesn't make it the wrong decision. Right, like you make good decisions for with the data the, and information you have, and if they don't come out right, they don't come out right. Like that's that's just the way life is. And it, but if you consistently make good decisions that are thoughtful, the right things will happen. And if you spend all your time doubting those decisions, your life will be miserable. So you're working at this internet company as an executive, then you leave to take a teaching job. How did you break the social pressure and why did you move to the teaching job? That actually was not that hard, as it turns out. So part of my job, and one of the things I had to do was try to convince people to take their vacation. Because if you carry people's vacation, it sort of counts against your numbers. So you want to you get vacation off the books. There were a bunch of people in that organization that like it had an exciting IPO and people were, you know, spent a bunch of time calculating their stock options and whatever. But they weren't particularly, some were, but lots of people weren't doing interesting work. They were mostly sitting at their desk. And I think that when I would go suggest, hey, you should take your vacation, they were really scared that if they left, this they never said to me. This was my, what I intuited. I was, you know, 23, 24. Was that if they left, they might not be missed. Like if they were gone for two weeks and everything was fine, somebody might realize that they weren't really doing anything or that what their job was was not that important. And there were people there. I can remember, I remember one guy I really liked, the software engineer. And in the course of a year as I watched, he, his, he lost his marriage young kids, and he just was never there. But he wasn't doing anything that interesting. It wasn't that he was 
totally engaged in what he was doing. Yes, he was going to make a fair amount of money via this IPO, assuming he sold shares before it went crazy bankrupt. And it was just heartbreaking for me. I was like, what are you doing? Go home, have dinner with your kids, go on vacation, take your wife away for the weekend, like go, like do it. And, and what I found is that actually after a few years, people didn't know how to do that. Even if they wanted to, they didn't know how to do it. So even as a 23-year-old, I was like, that. I, I'm not willing to make that sacrifice. So watching that, I found that the, the work I was doing, there was some interesting stuff and the internet was sort of cool. But there's nothing that was happening at work that was fulfilling. And I found that when I left work every day, I would go to Tahoe for the night. <laughs> like I actually would meet somebody for drinks, go to dinner with somebody, I'd go play basketball. I, I was doing things until three in the morning because I had things I wanted to do because it felt like I had wasted 10 hours of my day. So when I went to go teach, it wasn't hard at all because I felt like I was wasting my life. Like my heart wasn't in what I was doing. And, I, and so I was always trying to find other stuff to do. I understand that's not the experience of lots of people. For me, was like going to be a teacher meant my summers are free. I can do all sorts of things. I can travel. I can explore the world. I can build something. I can make something. And every day I could talk about literature and ideas and work with people who are excited and interested and, and be in real sincere conversations that weren't about the bottom line. I was working with a fair number of people. Yeah, some were, were pretty good. Not as passionately engaged as the teachers who I teach with on my hall, who care deeply every day about what they're doing. I think that's a, a perfect note to close on. Jake, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. On the next episode of The One Hour Intern, I learned from author, founder, and CEO of the nonprofit Charity Water, Scott Harrison. That dude was a real scumbag. I mean, unless you've murdered someone, you're going to find it hard-pressed to hold a candle to the botchery that I lived for 10 years. And I think that's like the first thing that I would say is that it's never too late to change your past. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.